The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. April 20th, 2020. Over the weekend, 18 of my fellow Canadians were killed in Nova Scotia by a man dressed as an officer of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and driving a car that he had painted to look very convincingly like an RCMP cruiser with coat of arms and all the rest of it. It began in Portapique from the Acadian word for porcupine, I think, uh, a village of 100 souls in which this mass murderer apparently owned three homes. He then drove south in his fake cruiser, pulling people over and then shooting them. We are in a strange world where police can arrest you for strolling in an empty park or check your car to see if you've been buying non-essential items. And doubtless, this aided this evil man's stratagem. It came to an end about 60 miles south in Enfield, Nova Scotia, where he was shot dead outside the Irving Big Stop gas station. I was in Enfield a little under two years ago, and it seemed to me the very last place on earth where such an atrocity would take place. But this is the worst mass shooting in Canada within living memory, worse than the Montreal massacre of three decades ago. That was horribly politicised by the usual opportunist politicians, so that, as I wrote in detail in After America, we drew precisely the wrong lessons from what happened and then set them in stone. This, too, will be horribly politicised just because politicians won't be able to resist it. But for now, nothing about this man is known, and so I shall say nothing more and hold in my heart the grieving communities of Nova Scotia. Elsewhere in the world, we begin another week in the clammy embrace of the Chinese coronavirus, death of a different kind. It's clear from listening to my chums around the dial that there is a basic disagreement about what this crisis is. For some, it's a medical emergency. Over 40,000 have died in America. Over 20,000 apiece in Italy, Spain and France. Those last are not small numbers. Even with the flattened curve of recent days, Italy has an ongoing 50% increase in its usual mortality rate. Then there are the politics of the thing. The Democrats are blocking easy practical relief measures from Washington because they figure that a collapsed economy works to their advantage in November. Los Angeles now has a 50% unemployment rate. I'm surprised we're not at the rioting and looting stage. But the Dems figure that even in deep blue states, they can hang all that round Trump. In Detroit, three quarters of corona deaths are black. In Wales, a quarter are what they call BAME, Black Asian, uh, which in the UK context means Muslim and Hindu, uh, black, Asian and minority ethnic. China, as my friend Tucker likes to say, is the most racist country on earth. So I wouldn't entirely rule out uh, their Wuhan Institute of Virology devising a virus especially virulent among races they're antipathetic to. But be that as it may, those disparities, such as uh, in Detroit ensure that the eventual toll will be politicised 
in all the most predictable ways. If you remember that 2000 ad uh, of a uh, black, a lynched black man being dragged behind a pickup truck, uh, you know what I'll be talking about there. Then, then there's the lockdown, the cure that's worse than the disease. Americans are more than restive on this, getting more restive every day. And they apparently have the support of the president, notwithstanding that his Twitter stream is significantly at odds with parts of his own administration. In Britain, the dressing up of total economic ruin as an act of prostration before the National Health Service seems to have been swallowed by the vast bulk of the populace. During one of those mass clap-ins for the NHS, I saw, I saw some fellows retool the national anthem into God save our NHS, uh, which would seem to complete the health system's total transformation into an established church. If I were the Queen, I'd quit and appoint Meghan regent. But alas, Her Majesty has learned to endure these indignities. And then there's the national security aspect. Rudy Giuliani used a striking phrase over the weekend with respect to the Chaikom's decision to prevent the citizens of Wuhan from traveling elsewhere within China while letting them travel anywhere else they wanted. Rome, Paris, London, New York, Vancouver, Stockholm. Giuliani called these air passengers death ambassadors and they were ambassadors of death from the court of chairman xi these aren't either or things it's not a question of a health crisis versus an economic crisis it can be both but ever since america alone i watched the far horizon and so for me the national security issue is paramount if this is what this year's ambassadors of death have loosed what will they do in 2021 or 2023 if they get away with this? We are a culture with ADHD. If they switch the lights of the economy back on, in the preferred metaphor, will we all just forget about what Beijing has done and go back to buying the cheap Chinese crap that fills Walmart and all the other crap hole emporia while our sons and daughters go back to the cheap service jobs? that uh, Chamber of Commerce outsourcing to China has left them with? Or will we learn the real lessons? To reprise my line of a couple of weeks back, China thinks ahead. Can we? OK, from the land where everything is policed except crime. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. We're now getting requests for Brit Wanker Coppers. Uh, Dylan from Quebec's beautiful Gas Bay Peninsula. I met Dylan at our last Christmas show, and I'm glad I did, because God knows when we will ever be permitted to stage a Christmas show again with the whole band on the same stage rather than Skyping it in from their living rooms, like all these awful all-star virtual fundraisers. Uh, Dylan was kind enough to give me a 78 RPM record, which I would love to play for you, but it happens to be in my office in another jurisdiction, so God knows when I'll next be able to put that on the old phonograph. At any rate, he's now tweeted something far less mellifluous at me. You know, we've had uh, Brit Wanker coppers from, oh, the Metropolitan Police, the South Yorkshire Police, the Northamptonshire Police, the Derbyshire Police, and people say... 
uh, Bedfordshire Police, let's not forget them. And people say, oh, they're just isolated incidents. No, it's not. It's a total cultural failure. Too many coppers have interpreted this mass quarantine to mean the citizenry are prisoners and they're your warders. So here is our Brit wanker copper of the day from the Lancashire Police. If anyone knows his name, please pass it along so that if I ever get to visit the UK again and he pulls me over for interviewing one of the sex-trafficked white slags, so-called, in his county that he doesn't give a toss about, I can urinate on his boots. This <coughs> Lancashire guy is what they call a bent copper threatening to fit someone up. And he's so cocksure about it, he doesn't seem to care that he's making his threat on camera and into a microphone. We're not going to bleep the F word here. Sir Robert Peel didn't speak to the public like that, and his sweaty porcine air in Lancashire shouldn't be doing it either. So when so-called public servants no longer know how to talk to the public, we want that on the record. If you want to fucking step to me and put your chest out and stuff like that, then fine, I'll lock you up. We'll do that, shall we? I'll make something up. Full recorder. Screw up to a police officer. Do I do that? Who are they going to believe, me or you? Who are they going to believe, me or you? Actually, I think they will believe him because you're on tape bragging about how you'll make something up which uh, tends to diminish the credibility of any evidence you might give in court because your ease, your ease with the boast and the threat of perjury leads to the reasonable inference, officer, that you've done it before. But yes, a lot of judges are wankers too, so if that's not enough, maybe you can get this Lancashire policeman on not observing social distancing rules. Let's just rerun this bit again. If you want to fucking step to me... So he says, are you threatening me? And at that point, the out-of-control porcine goon is the only one threatening, charging up to the guy, getting in his face barely six inches rather than the mandatory six feet uh, of social distance and exhaling his potentially fatal halitosis straight down the citizen's gullet. Lancashire's Chief Constable Andy Rhodes has apologised on behalf of the force and said he's going to launch an investigation, although there doesn't actually seem to be a lot to investigate here, does there, Chief Constable? So I ask again, where is the so-called Conservative government on this? Where is the Home Secretary? Boris says this corona thing is war. OK, fair enough, as I said on Friday, you win wars by sticking it to the enemy. Not your own side. Every day this dirty, rotten, perjury-threatening copper remains in the constabulary, shames England. What are you going to do about it, so-called Tories? And that's why Chief Constable Rhodes's as-yet-unnamed officer, presumably sitting at home today on full pay, is your Brit wanker copper of the day. It's your Monday Mohammed. The jihad never sleeps even in the age of corona. For the second night running, police clashed with, quote, youths. In Villeneuve-la-Garenne, north of Paris, because the, quote, youths were not observing Monsieur Macron's quarantine. But why should a, quote, youth observe the coronavirus quarantine? A couple of weeks back, our Monday Mohammed 
a big shot imam from Syracuse, New York, was bemoaning the way these hideous blue surgical masks clashed with the nice stylish basic black of a classic burqa or niqab. But that's uh, nancing around the issue, isn't it? I mean, it's a fashion note. Fine if you're doing the latest haute couture collections for Waziristan Vogue, uh, but not otherwise of much use. Today's Monday Mohammed, an even bigger shot imam, from Egypt, uh, this time, not Syracuse, New York. Mohammed al-Hefnawi al-Ansari cuts to the chase and says, the old corona is a soldier of Allah. Here's his opening line. Shukran corona. That means, thank you, corona. Why is he thanking the corona? The corona. Because the corona has made them shut down all the pubs where the infidels drink their alcohol. The corona has made them shut down the coffee houses because unlike nice Islamic male-only coffee houses, here the infidel gets to sip macchiatos with his filthy infidel whore. The corona has made them shut down all the cinemas where they show the filthy, rotten American movies with the gay best friends and all the potential Oscar-winning roles for Islamic terrorists going to English infidels like Jeremy Irons and Gary Oldman. The corona has shut down all the whorehouses worldwide. That's, uh, that's actually true in Canada. The, quote, sex workers are demanding public funding from Justin Trudeau because they've all been laid off. So the coronavirus is a great thing, says Imam Mohammed al-Hefnawi al-Ansari, because it's making the filthy infidel world more like a Sharia state. No booze, no brothels, and all the women covering their faces. He's not actually wrong about that, is he? Now all Allah has to do is finish the job. Oh, Allah, use the coronavirus to eliminate the infidels. Oh, and also those lousy Shiites, if there are any Ayatollahs left in Iran. There are over 3,000 corona cases in Egypt, but they're probably just Jews or wrinkly old trollops from the last cat house in Alexandria. There are over 1,500 cases in Iraq. But these ISIS gals up north in Kurdistan agree with Imam Mohammed. The disease does not infect us because we are pious. We fast and we pray. So who does this disease infect, asks the interviewer. It infects the infidels, she replies. It does not infect Muslims. Her gal pal agrees. The coronavirus is a soldier of Allah. And a girl. Alas, they can't take uh, our prize because they're chicks, so they have to walk behind their husbands carrying the flat screen TV 
uh, back to uh, ISIS headquarters while Hubby saunters along in front with his mate enjoying a cigarette. So for stating that the infidels' lands are looking more and more like Sharia Central every day of the week, Imam Mohammed al-Hefnawi al-Ansari is this week's Monday Mohammed. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance, tales that transcend genre, everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen tales for our time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com tfot. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Ian Corey, a first-day founding member of the Stein Club, uh, writes from Hampshire. That's old Hampshire, not New Hampshire. And Ian doesn't really uh, have a question. He has a Winston Churchill quotation with reference to the uh, new rulers we see giving these press conferences in Washington and uh, London and around the world uh, every night. Scientists and experts generally should be on tap, not on top. The words of Winston Churchill, and it uh, uh, set off quite a bit of uh, comment among uh, other uh, readers. Uh, Segnesh Shonkin, I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, Mr. Shonkin. Uh, he writes from beautiful, if... Uh, politically nutty Adelaide in South Australia. But he makes a good point. He says, such a telling quotation. Uh, Good science is important, but it's not necessarily good policy. Put a medical practitioner in charge of policy and in consequence of his perfectly legitimate concern with preventing infection, criminals are released from jail around the globe. Sure enough, fewer criminals are infected by the Wuhan lurgy but other people are infected by murders, rapes, robberies, what have you. I've written before that one can't blame specialists for a certain narrowness of perspective. But here's the thing. Whether one admires Winston Churchill unconditionally or not, he had the good sense not to leave policy decisions in the hands of those specialists. As you pointed out, he ensured that his experts were on tap, not on top. What has possessed Western leaders to ignore that golden axiom? I'd just like to add a couple of quick notes uh, to what our correspondent said. Um, Way back when... Uh, when Democrats started insisting that you had no right to opine on an abortion unless you'd been pregnant, I used to say, gee, I wonder if that principle will be universally applied. You have no right to opine on war uh, unless you've seen combat. But in fact, they've kind of embraced that. Uh, Trump has no right to countermand his generals on Afghanistan. Uh, Foreign policy, uh, he has no right to countermand the permanent foreign policy policy officials. By the time of the impeachment trial, they were arguing that Trump had no right to disagree with John Bolton, a man they'd refused to confirm for UN ambassador just a couple of years earlier because they thought he was an unstable neocon Dr. Strangelove. Now on public health, they're saying Trump has no right to disagree with the infallible Dr. Fauci. I see Dr. Fauci 
is now giving advice on whether it's safe to hook up on Tinder. So now the remit of Dr. Fauci extends to the bedroom. I was hoping to hook up with a 23-year-old co-ed with 48-inch knockers, but Dr. Fauci said I'd be better off with a 67-year-old middle-aged accountant with an eye twitch and incontinency problems. Let's face it, Dr. Fauci knows best about everything. There's a reason we have civilian control of the military. Because in free societies, the elected persons accountable to the citizens set policy and everyone else enacts it. And if you lose sight of that, uh, you wind up actually inverting Sir Winston's axiom. You wind up with scientists on top, but not on tap. Fauci and uh, the delightful Dr. Burks are not primarily quote-unquote scientists. They're public health officials, which means they're government bureaucrats. And in the case of America, uh, in fact, the public health bureaucracies have done what all bureaucracies do and metastasized into doing everything but their mission. So the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is a pretty specific name, you'd think, uh, not liable to misinterpretation. Nevertheless, it's wasted its time and uh, unlimited budget on everything but disease control. So it's all uh, obsessed with racism and other social justice issues. So that when you actually need it to control the disease, the Centers for Disease Control is like the 24-hour dry cleaner in the old Bonzo Dog Doodah sketch. You'll get your shirt back a week on Thursday because 24-hour dry cleaners is just the name of the store. Centers for Disease Control is apparently just the name of the store. Meanwhile, around the globe... There are all kinds of scientists in private facilities with advice and insight who could be chipping in. No one knows anything terribly long-term reliable about this thing because it's brand new, so there are no experts. We could use different pieces of advice from different doctors all over the map, except uh, China, but instead only a very narrow sliver of so-called expertise from career bureaucrats gets through and is preposterously over-venerated. Uh, to modify Churchill, when a science bureaucrat is on top, there are too few scientists on tap. Mark Stein's Last Call. Arlene Saunders was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1930 and was a spinto soprano. Spinto sopranos are extremely rare and one would imagine even rarer in Cleveland. They have the bright, easy high notes of a lyric soprano but can push beyond. That's what spinto means, push, uh, for powerful dramatic effect that surges uh, through an orchestra. Here's Arlene Saunders in 1968 opposite a young Placido Domingo. Opera composers 
liked writing Spinto roles, and that is one of them. Arlene Saunders as Elsa, opposite Placido Domingo in Wagner's Lohengrin. Half a century after that performance, Miss Saunders and Domingo would be reunited by COVID-19. He is trying to shake off the virus. She is dead of it at the age of 89. Here is Arlene Saunders in a German film of a faintly ridiculous opera I've always quite enjoyed, Karl Milliker's Gasparone. Oh God, das ist ein Mann. Norman Bites Your Legs Hunter lived the operatic dramas of the football field. The hard man of Leeds United, he was their centre-half through the glory years of the late 60s and early 70s. Norman Hunter with 540 league games. What a combination. Got three West Ham defenders surging around him, but he finds now Peter Lorimer inside for Johnny Giles. And Hunter coming up fast to drive it. Oh, and what a goal! What a goal by Norman Hunter! Norman Hunter was a tough tackler in ways I'm not sure you can quite get away with today. And Kendall fouled by Hunter. And that's Howard Kendall out for the count. Fouled because Hunter went in very late. I love the way he puts that. Hunter went in very late. And Alan Ball has just made a signal saying we're going to need a substitute. He's running now towards the bench saying that Kendall will not be able to continue the game. He's having a word now with Harry Catrick, the Everton manager. He went in very late for England too. He was on the 1966 World Cup team but didn't get to play thanks to the uh, indispensable Bobby Moore. Four years later, Alf Ramsey sent him in very late in the England-West Germany match when England looked to have the game in the bag, uh, which is why Sir Alf thought he'd rest up his regulars and give some of the boys on the bench a turn. England wound up losing to the old enemy 3-2 and exiting the World Cup in an international humiliation that made the decision to bring on Norman Hunter one of the most talked-about and controversial substitutions of all time. Why was he called Bites Your Legs? Well, it started as a memorable banner held up by fans at the 1972 FA Cup final against Arsenal. Norman bites your legs. But it caught on, and at least one of Her Majesty's revenue agents was partial to it. It was at the cup final, and then I remember getting a, an income tax return, and, and there was a little note, and there was the income tax return, and there was a little note saying, Norman, keep biting, you know. <laughs> But it's, uh, it's light-hearted. No, it's not, uh, it's not serious, you know. In those days, biting your legs was a rare non-taxable activity in the United Kingdom. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 76, Norman bites your legs hunter. 
Whether or not Norman Hunter ever actually bit your legs, Francesco Di Carlo would do far worse to them. He was a mafioso, initiated into the Cosa Nostra in 1966 and within a few years capo familia. For almost four decades, Francesco Di Carlo's name was linked with a mysterious death on the River Thames. On the 18th of June, 1982, the lifeless body of a middle-aged man was seen hanging from a section of scaffolding just above the water under Blackfriars Bridge. The Thames River police raced to the scene, assuming it was just another routine suicide. It was thought he had waited until dark, then climbed down under the bridge and hanged himself. Culver's body was released to his family and taken back to Drezzo in Italy for burial. But this was by no means the end of the story. The deceased Roberto Calvi was the head of the Banco Ambrosiano and was known as God's Banker because he handled the Vatican's money. He also handled the Mafia's money. There were definitely plenty of people with an interest in silencing him, but the prime suspect is the Mafia. The Mafia has motives, uh, clearly to do it, that it, it had lost money through him, it's, or prop, one presumes it was losing money through him. Uh, it too um, might have been frightened that Calvi would talk, breaching the great Mafia vow of Omerta. Um, and the Mafia doesn't like it when it makes money available to people and people don't pay the money back. For years, Francesco Di Carlo denied that he had murdered Roberto Calvi, although he eventually conceded he'd been offered the job but that by the time he telephoned back to say, yeah, sure, I'll do it, they'd offered it to someone else. He fell out with the Mafia over a heroin shipment that went missing, but they very generously agreed not to kill him because of his sterling service to them over the years. He moved to England, settled in a grand mansion in the home county stockbroker belt, and got himself a piece of the international drug traffic in action until he got nobbled by HM Customs and the Mounties, and wound up sentenced to 25 years. Signor Di Carlo then turned pentito, that's a mafia informant, and was returned to Rome where he struck a deal that allowed him to be relocated anywhere in the world. He said he would like to go to Canada, because for mafiosi and mobsters, that's the best country in the world for a chap with his particular interests to pursue them undisturbed by the authorities. That's something to be proud of, Canada. In the end, he settled for France. He survived a lot. The Mafia Civil Wars of the 70s, uh, the Calvi murder investigations, a British prison, his breach of Omerta, always avoiding the death he'd meted out to others. Until a Chinese virus showed up and a powerful mobster was as weak as a little old widow woman, dead of COVID-19, at the age of 79, the highest-ranking mafioso to be so stricken, Roberto Calvi. Three-quarters of a century ago, April 15, 1945, British troops liberated the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in Lower Saxony. And among the prisoners they found there was Margit Buchholter, a 15-year-old Hungarian girl. Sixty-eight of her family were sent to the German camps, Margit was one of two to survive. You were put into a barrack where people died. The straw that you lay down was full of 
whatever came out of their body's vomit or discretion. And it didn't take 24 hours for your body to get covered with lice. Her first camp was Auschwitz, where, upon arrival, her parents were sent to the gas chambers. Margit thought quickly and lied about her age, claiming to be 18 and thus getting sent to a work camp. When she was then sent to Belsen, she developed pleurisy and pneumonia and was further injured in her final hours of captivity by explosives that the Germans, aware of the British approach, had set off in an attempt to destroy the evidence of what they'd done. With no family left, Margit emigrated to Sweden and then to New Jersey, where she never talked about the war for three decades, until a neighbour's boy persuaded her that it was an important story to tell. Governor Murphy of New Jersey paid tribute to her. Margaret would become an X-ray technician and in 1953 married Harvey Feldman, with whom she would raise a family. Their son Joseph, himself by the way a medical doctor, working in East Orange, and I spoke to him earlier today, and daughter Tina. She and Harvey would see their children marry and give them three grandchildren. Harvey, her husband should be noted, is currently in Morristown Medical Center, also with COVID-19. Please everybody keep him in your prayers. She survived Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen, but could not survive the Chinese coronavirus. Dead of COVID-19 one day before the 75th anniversary of her liberation from Belsen, Margit Feldman. Here is the late Arlene Saunders with music by a composer from the late Margit Feldman's native land, Ina Veerdkommen. to add a postscript to our COVID obits. Earlier this month, I saluted a great guitarist and a particular favourite of mine, Bucky Pizzarelli, felled by this Chicom contagion. A week after Bucky died, his widow Ruth succumbed also to this evil virus. This is something of a pattern. Uh, my fellow Ontarian, Janice Dean, is one of the great glories of Fox News, where she reigns supreme over the weather department at Fox and & Friends. And whenever I'm down there in the green room, we talk about uh, Canada. Um, she was one of the first to go into corona seclusion because she has multiple sclerosis and thus a, quote, underlying condition, as we now say. Uh, nevertheless, Janice has just lost her father-in-law to COVID-19, and then a few days later, her mother-in-law, Mickey and Dee Newman. And she has written about the particular grief of these coronavirus deaths, victims dying alone while loved ones can't even say goodbye. These double bereavements are a terrible thing, terrible thing, especially for grandchildren who have to cope 
with the loss of two grandparents in the space of a week. It is not obviously the evil that befell the savagely orphaned 15-year-old Margit in Auschwitz, but it is cruel and bereaving and quite unnecessary. I don't understand people who say, oh, well, these old people would have died anyway. Not within a week of each other, they wouldn't. You try explaining to a 10-year-old why Grammy won't be around anymore four days after you had to explain why Grandpa won't. These double bereavements are the gift of vile, corrupt men like the non-doctor Dr. Tedros, the WHO's doctor of death, for whom Lady Gaga and the US TV networks spent the weekend raising money. Shame on them. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.